Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to transform lives by enabling people to make the study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of their daily lives. Our plan is to work together, God willing, through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Old Testament book, New Testament book, each in its own way as we go. If you're here for the very first time, then why not click on the subscribe button wherever it is you get your podcasts from and make sure you don't miss another single episode. Take advantage of this opportunity to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. So with that said, let's pick up where we left off last time and do hang on at the back end while I'll tell you lots of ways in which you can connect with this ministry and also receive additional free teaching resources. Bye-bye for now. Okay, folks, we're picking up exactly where we finished last time, and we're going to be looking up at Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Another very famous passage of scripture in which we see an image of Jesus being available to help those in their hour of trouble with the words of comfort that he is there and that we should not be afraid. So let me just begin by reading the opening verses for you, verses 22 to 27, which says this. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. I believe the lesson of this passage is absolutely clear. But what actually happened and how it happened is perhaps not for some. So first of all, I think it's helpful to do a little scene setting. You'll remember the last couple of days there had been this situation where Jesus had fed this multitude of people, 5,000 men as well as women and children. And after the feeding of this multitude, Jesus sends his disciples away. In fact, this text tells us that he made them, compelled them, it says in translations, to leave on the boat and go on ahead of him. Now, at first sight, this word compelled sounds strange. Why would he so forcefully send them on their way, as it were? Well, if we turn to John's account of this incident, we see a little explanation of why perhaps he used these words. It tells us this, that Jesus, after the feeding of the multitude, the crowd wished to come and lay hands on him and make him a king by force. You see, upon Jesus' arrival on the scene, there was a huge surge of popular acclamation and an excited 
agitated state spread among the people that the messiahs arrived, which meant there was a very real possibility that some sort of revolution might begin. The reaction of the people to Jesus was complicated, and many, some would say most, were still thinking in terms of Jesus' arrival wholly in terms of his earthly power. Jesus here sends his disciples away because a situation has arisen which he felt could best be dealt with by diffusing the situation and also dealing with it alone in a sense in that he would separate himself off from everyone including his disciples because if there was a group of people he would be much easier to be followed by the crowd but also because he did not wish his closest disciples to become involved in any what might be perceived as the Romans as a political insurrection and he simply wanted to be alone with his father in heaven and he did manage to do that he went up to a mountain to pray so he finally withdrew and got himself where he was alone up on the top of a mountain to pray and by this time it tells us that night had come now the disciples, they'd set off back across the lake and one of these sudden storms for which this lake was notorious had come down and suddenly they found themselves struggling against the wind and the waves and they were actually making little, if any, progress at all across the lake. Sudden gusts of wind and squally storms are very common in the Sea of Galilee. So now there had arisen one of these sudden violent squalls to which well, not just the Lake of Galilee, they're all inland waters around the world, surrounded by hills that are intersected with deep gorges. All water features are liable to great storms in those situations, and that is still the case to this day on the Sea of Galilee. But as the night wore on, we see Jesus begin to walk around the head of the lake in order to reach the other side, one would assume to potentially meet his disciples rowing across the lake. Now Matthew had already told us that when Jesus fed the crowd, he made them sit, and it actually says on the green grass in a literal translation. And from that, Bible experts have deduced that these events must have occurred in springtime. Very likely, it was very near the Passover time, which was in the middle of April. This would have meant that there would have been a full moon. Also worth noting, a little insight that's within the text is that the time, in ancient times, in that part of the world at that time, the night was divided into what were called four watches. 6pm to 9pm, 9pm to midnight, 12 to 3 and 3 to 6. So it would seem that these events occurred sometime after 3 o'clock in the morning. And Jesus is walking around the higher ground at the north of the lake, coming down from the mountain, and from there he sees the boat fighting with the waves and he comes down to the shore, one can assume perhaps to help. And remember the Bible says the reaction of the disciples on seeing this figure gradually appear in their vision. It says when they saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying it is a ghost and they cried out in fear. A ghost, an apparition, a spectre as some translations call it. The word is sometimes also rendered spirit. So it seems to me that he would appear to them first like a distant, moving, shadowy object, a spectre almost, first of all, appearing to them as if upon the water. But then they would see that this was indeed a human figure emerging from the darkness, walking upon the water, 
But it's understandable in this situation, in the middle of the night, in the dark, with a storm going on, and a dark stormy sky creating the backdrop, and not actually realising that it could be the Lord, in one level you can say it's understandable that they take it for a spirit or a ghost. But thinking about what that teaches us today, I think it's worth saying that there are times when we find ourselves up against it, that we find ourselves in a desperate struggle, in difficult circumstances, where we seem to be pushing forward and making little progress. Times when our temptations or our sorrows can overtake us and when our decision-making can become flawed. At such times, it's natural to be afraid and also perhaps to make wrong judgments. But here Jesus Christ comes, which tells me that he came for them that day and he can come for us. There's no need for us to be alone in our times of struggle. And Jesus comes to them during the storm and I believe he is willing always to come to us in the storms of life. With in a sense a hand stretched out and with a calm voice and a calm word, always bidding us to take heart and to have no fear and to trust in him. This passage is clearly meant to be taken as a sign of a symbol of what the Lord is always willing to do for his people, not just what happened on that day 2,000 years ago. When times are hard for us, when the wind is against us, when we ourselves are in danger of being overwhelmed by the storms of life, he is there, he is always there, and he speaks these words to us also. It is I, be not afraid, the King James says. How often in your life have we really needed to hear him speak those words of encouragement for us? It is I, do not be afraid. It is I, literally, I am. The same language is being used here by Jesus as the language that will be used in Jerusalem when the Pharisees wanted to stone him because they recognised he was using the identical phrase of the Old Testament to designate himself as the great I Am, Jehovah God. The phrase by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am, Exodus 3.14 says. Here I believe Jesus is revealing himself as the great I am, but revealing himself to anyone who is his disciple and anyone who chooses to follow him. It is I, I am your friend, he says. It is I, do not be afraid, I am your Lord, he says. It is I, the great I am who is coming to you, the almighty one, the one in this picture is seen as the one who rules the waves and one who created the seas and the oceans but yet still rules the waves because he is the great I am who made them and therefore they will obey him. But even in that great revealing of God we still see a certain loss of faith but not permanently, temporarily. Let's remind ourselves of what the text says next. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him, and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I don't think there's any other passage in the New Testament in which Peter's character is more fully wholly revealed than this. I believe it tells us really important things about him. Firstly, it shows us that Peter was someone who was always given to acting upon insult. He was always acting without thinking about what he was doing. It would be seen to be his pattern again and again. He would say or act without first fully counting the cost or even understanding sometimes what it was he was doing. He was to do this exact sort of thing when he cut the Roman soldier's ear off in the garden when they came to arrest Jesus. Or, probably most dramatically, when one moment he was affirming undying and unshakable loyalty to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 to 35, and then he denies the Lord's name a few verses later, three times. But yet, friends, there are worse sins than the sins of Peter. Peter's only trouble in reality was the fact that he was ruled by his heart. And although he might sometimes slip up, he might fail, his motivation was nearly always coming from the right place. And the instinct of his heart was always his love for the Lord. And like all of us, he would occasionally be overtaken by fear or anger. So there's a lot we can learn and be comforted by this. Because it says that although Peter acted on impulse, it often shows us that even though he often failed and came to grief, he would often thereafter reach out to the Lord again. It is always Jesus' perspective that we should not make those mistakes of Peter, that we should try as best we can, look at every situation realistically, even if sometimes it appears bleak, but we should look at it full in the face prayerfully, trustfully, before we act. Peter's acts did not always turn out to be acts of faith. What Peter did, not always born out of a great faith in the Lord, he was sometime moved by his fears and his doubts. But on the other side of that coin, what we can learn from this is that true faith never attempts to do amazing things merely for the sake of doing them. It is a fact that ought to be noted that the gospel narrates the failures of the individuals within it, the followers of Jesus. Yes, it does demonstrate the miraculous power of the Lord and on the part of the apostles at time as well and those who were their successors. And it's interesting to me that no other book, religious book or even books of myth choose to do this. They always want to make the hero appear a hero. But the difference in these gospel accounts, we see real people driven by real fears and real emotions and it is always made plain why they failed. Jesus, all throughout his ministry, was completely honest with people. In fact, you could say he was warning us and trying to get us to a point where we'd understand how difficult it could be to follow him sometimes. You know, a great deal of Christian failure is due to acting upon an emotional moment rather than praying and weighing the situation first or even counting the cost of the decision we make because then it does not trip us up or surprise us when it happens. And finally I think it tells us that Peter like all of us can get there in the end. He never ultimately failed for always in the moment of his breakdown he was always in a sense clutching out reaching out for Christ. 
The wonderful thing about him is that every time he fell, he always rose again. He always got up again. And ultimately, even his failures brought him closer to the Lord. And in life, even our failures and our mistakes, if we acknowledge them and bring them to the Lord and gain insights from them, they can bring us closer to him. It has been well said by many before me that a Christian is not someone who never fails. A Christian is someone who repents and gets up and goes on again every time he fails. A Christian is not someone who never sins, but is simply someone who sins and chooses to repent and then move forward again. Ultimately, Peter's failures only made him love Jesus Christ and depend on him more. These verses finish by depicting another great and eternal truth. The fact that when Jesus got into the boat, the wind reduced. And that tells me the great truth that we must acknowledge here and try as best we can apply it in our own lives, is that whenever we draw Christ into these situations, then the wildest storms of life that we might be facing can become calm. Reading from the letters of Francis of Assisi, we discover Francis noticed a certain custom in the district of the country in which he was living at that time. He noticed that one day a young farm servant, he noticed that she would go across the farmyard every day to draw water at the well. He also noticed that before she lifted the pail out of the well, she put two flat pieces of wood across it and threw the rope. And one day he went to the girl and asked her, why do you do that? She looked surprised and answered as if this was just common sense because she'd done it all his life. Why, she said, it keeps the water from spilling. It keeps it steady. Writing to a friend later, he used this story as an illustration and noted that when the heart is distressed and agitated, if we too put the cross at its centre, it will keep it steady. In every storm and stress of life, the presence of Christ and the love of Christ, which ultimately flows out from the cross, will bring peace and serenity and calm. Okay, let's just close off this passage and read the last few verses when we see the crowd still following and many come before him to touch him, and indeed many are, in fact, made well. It says, When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick. And they begged him that they might touch the hem of his garment, and as many touched it were made perfectly well. Now this is just a small connecting passage marking the end of this section and a new one starting. It's only a sentence or two in this gospel story and it would be very easy to pass over it and not recognise its importance and what it reveals about Jesus and the crowds that might appear at times to follow him. Firstly, it obviously shows that no sooner did Jesus appear again that everywhere people started crowding around him again and clamouring for help and that he never refused it. It says he healed them all. There's no evidence here of him preaching or teaching at any length. It's simply a record that he goes around and people throw themselves at him and that he heals many. But the most tremendous thing about this, I think, is the fact that Jesus is seen to not only teach people by what he says, but he teaches them what God is like by showing them what God is like. He did not just tell them that God cared through stories and parable. He showed them that God cares. 
and it seems to me that still today there's little use of talking or preaching about the love of God in words alone without showing the love of God in our actions as churches and communities and individuals. But there is also a great anguish, a great sadness to be seen here if we look at this passage carefully. You should not read this passage without recognising the grim truth that there were hundreds and thousands of people who desired Jesus, but ultimately it would be seen that they would only desire him for what they could get out of him. For in spite of all these crowds today, the crowd would ultimately turn against him, and in a frighteningly short period of time. Once many had received their healing, the thing which they sought, they were not really prepared to go any further with it, to take the situation any further. And I suppose it's always been the case. People often want the blessings of Christianity or the accoutrements and the attributes of a religious Christian life without recognising its responsibilities and the call it makes upon us and our lives. It has always been the case that many people will only come before God or even remember God when they have need of him. Ingratitude towards God and towards Christ is probably the worst of all sins. And there's probably no sin of which men and women are more often and more consistently guilty. Yet he still knows that, and yet he still continues to offer all of us forgiveness and reconciliation in spite of our flaws. Okay, friends, we'll leave it there. And we'll pick up exactly where we left off next time. I do hope you're finding our time together helpful and you're blessed by it. Wherever you're receiving your podcast from, the actual podcast itself is hosted on the bibleproject.buzzsprout.com. So if you're not seeing links to ways in which you can connect your ministry on your ordinary podcast app or platform, then just go there and you'll be able to find active links to all the other ways which you can connect with my ministry and the free Bible resources that I make available there. There's also a place on thebuzzsprout.com where you can, if you wish, make a decision to partner and support this ministry. My vision is that one day this ministry would be entirely self-sustainable, but the gifts of a tiny percentage of people supporting it would enable it to continue to be available anybody seeking to make a study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives. But having said that, if you're just enjoying listening and working through the Bible together, then that's absolutely fine. This ministry on my part will always remain free, freely available and copyright free in the public domain. So with that said, thank you so much for joining me. What an amazing privilege it is to bring the study of the Bible, not only into the rhythm of our daily lives, but to try and bring it into the orbit of ordinary people's lives as well. 
an opportunity that hasn't existed before in this way until these amazing recent changes in technology and what it makes available to us. So with that all said, I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.